So in this episode of Clinically Press, we have Gary Reno, and we'll get into all the introductions when the episode starts. Uh, just wanted to get a quick start on this one and kind of a reminder of this is a very one-sided part of the argument, which some people don't respond very well to, and we understand that. Uh, but we think it is very important that even if you don't completely agree with what is being said, let it challenge you. Let it Just let it sit there and actually test what you think you've known and have always done and i think you might be surprised in what you find out uh with that we really hope you enjoy this episode uh, as always if you have any questions send us a message uh throw something out on social media we'll be happy to get back to you and we really hope you enjoy this episode Ready? On this episode of Clinically Press, we got Gary Reno, the anti-ice man. Uh, we're going to talk everything about why icing is probably one of the biggest myths in sports medicine history, I think would be fair to say. Um, so, Gary, you just want to give kind of some background and your history with it and go? I'd be happy to do that. Uh, well, actually, what, how this all started uh, was by uh, a complete misunderstanding of the facts. In 1962, a young man by the name of Everett Knowles, 12 years old, hopped the freight train. And it was kind of a rite of passage for 12-year-olds that live in that part of the country. You got to hop the freight train, ride it 100 yards, and then jump off. And everybody pats your back and tells you you finally did it. Well, what he did was he hopped it and, in celebration, gave himself a little cheering action with his arm. And with that, they hit a stone abutment and ripped his arm off. And he fell to the ground thinking he broke his arm, uh, picked his arm up in his jacket. Remember, it's actually severed from his body. It's off. And he picked it up and stumbled up the hill. And some people saw him at a, a factory and realized he was in trouble and called the police. And they got him over to Mass General. And when they got there, remember, this is 1962. When they got there, a young physician by the name of Ronald Malt looked at the situation and said, you know what? We've thought about this. We've talked about this. We believed it's possible. Let's reattach this severed body part. And with that, the history of icing began because here's what happened next. They assembled a team to sew this arm back on to reattach it. And remember, it's 1962. This is almost impossible to do. They don't have the glasses to see. They don't have the microscopes, the magnifying glass. They don't have what it takes to do this. But they assembled a team. And while they were planning on what they were going to do and when and how, one of the docs, some reports give Ronald Malt the credit, some give another, another surgeon on the team the credit. But someone said, while we're figuring this out, put that arm on ice so it doesn't decay, so it doesn't rot. Now, with that, the myth began. 
because here's what happened next. They sewed the arm on and it worked. And over time, the, every time something happened that this young man did, like when he, when he opened his fingers the first time, that made worldwide news. When he caught a baseball the first time, it made worldwide news. When he typed the first time, it made worldwide news. And to go back in history to that time, you got to realize that this actually made Ronald Malt, the physician, world famous. He literally traveled the world teaching other physicians how they reattach the severed body part. Now, the story goes like this. Every time they were interviewed, the docs would give this intense answer about how they sewed the arm back on. And the reporters would say, Doc, really? What do we need to know if this ever happens to us? You know, that, that's great about what you just said, but my audience doesn't want to hear that. They want to hear, what do I need to know if this ever happens to me? And the doc responded something like this. There is no actual exact account of this that I've been able to find, but it went something like this. The doc said, the reporter said to the doc, what do I need to know? And the doc responded, don't panic, remain calm. That became rest. Keep the severed body part out of the sun, out of the heat. That became ice. Use a tourniquet to seal off the blood so that you don't bleed out. That became compression. And elevation was to keep the intact part above the heart. That's all it was. It had to do with preventing bleed out and rotting of the severed body part. That's all it had to do with. It had nothing to do with bumping your knee and putting ice on it. But the public converted that order to the RICE protocol. Actually, the physician who created the RICE protocols, Dr. Gabe Merkin, in his sports medicine book, his 1978 sports medicine book, a green book with white lettering for everybody old enough to remember the book. And in that book, Dr. Merkin coined the phrase RICE. Rest, ice, compression, elevation. Dr. Merkin, having no idea, to my understanding, had no idea of the original story of how this all started. Because that was 62, now it's 78, so we're 16 years later. But the process was in place. The myth was set to run. And the RICE protocol simply took off. And from my understanding, it is the most practiced protocol in all of medicine, in, in, in our type of medicine. There are other countries in the world, China doesn't ice anybody. But in our part of the medicine world, the most practiced protocol is rice. Rest, ice, compression, elevation. Everybody knows it, rice is nice. You learned it in school and you know it. Now the problem is it has nothing to do with damaged tissue. It has to do with severed body parts and preventing a bleed out. So there you go, that's how the myth began. Yeah, I think you could very easily make the statement it is the most practice. I know, unfortunately, there still gets used a lot and everything that we see just because it, I think I've heard you say it before um, with like soccer moms and things like that. It's just something easy. Oh, if something hurts, just go put ice on it. No big deal. And it should get feeling better. Well, yeah, that's actually, you're, you're correct. Is that that added to the, to the myth? Because back in the 1980s, there were, there was a, a a group that was affectionately called soccer moms and the soccer moms had a new product 
And the new product was the thing you could carry in a, in a tote bag or a gym bag or whatever. And all you had to do was snap it. And when you snapped it, it instantly became cold. The chemical mixed and it became cold. So they were cold packs. And anybody could carry one. You could carry one on your jacket, for heaven's sakes. It was su such a simple product. And it took no talent, no skill, no expertise. All you had to do was snap it and put it on the cold, put the cold pack on the body part that was bumped. And yes, it does give relief. It does. It honestly does. But the problem with that is it delays healing, it increases swelling, it causes additional damage, and it shuts off the signals that alert you to harmful movement, and you need movement to solve the problem. So yes, it helps, but no, it's not good in the long run because of what you sacrifice. I, I liken that to the sympathetic bartender that gives the alcoholic a drink so he can temporarily feel better. At what cost did you actually help the situation? And the answer is no, you didn't, and it's not a good idea. But because it was so readily available in the, in the snap pack of ice, and then of course ice itself is practically free, and it's available almost everywhere, it's just such an easy thing to do and it rhymed after all, rice is nice, so why not do that? And then next thing you know, everyone believed it was true. And yet there's no clinical, no clinical evidence whatsoever that it's a good thing to do for the reason most people use it. Most people use ice for one of three reasons, for getting pain because that's just a misnomer. Making it numb doesn't solve the problem whatsoever and makes things worse. So that's not a good plan. But they use it to prevent inflammation, to prevent swelling, and to get rid of swelling. Okay, that's the three main uses of, of ice on damaged tissue. Well, if we just go to the first question and ask, you know, just let's just be fair and straightforward and stay evidence-based and not get lost in emotions. Let's just go straight up. Inflammation. Why would you want to prevent inflammation? Why? Why would you want to do that? It's phase one of three phases of healing. Anyone who's been educated even remotely in this field, even just general education and physiology, you learn that inflammation is phase one of three phases of healing. It's inflammation repair remodel. So why in the world would you want to prevent inflammation? And I always have the, you know, the, the person in the audience that will raise their hand and say, well, you don't want too much inflammation. And I say, really, too much? So how much is too much? Is it 7% too much? 18% too much? Do right feet get more inflammation than left feet? Do hands get different than arms? How, do, how would you measure that? What's your mechanism of, of, of determining that there's too much? And then how would you know when there wasn't enough? So you wouldn't want to put on so much that now you don't have enough, but you clearly wouldn't want to prevent something that you need. So how are you going to measure that? How are you going to determine what you should do? Oh, but wait, we have a bigger problem. because when the tissue rewarms, doesn't the inflammatory response resume? Well, the answer is yes. So the fact is, even if you could regulate it, if you could measure to say, hey, there's 7% too much, so we need to prevent 7% of it, which you don't, there is no such tool, so there is no way to measure that. You measure it. So you can't do that. So now we have our next problem where we go, wait a minute, I can't measure it. It's going to come back once the tissue rewarms. So why am I doing this? And then wait, there's a bigger problem. When you put the ice on, because it caused additional damage, 
because it causes a backflow from the lymphatic vessels in the interstitial space, that actually sets off an inflammatory response because that new debris in the, in the, in the, in the damaged area is now viewed as the enemy and the body sets off an inflammatory response to deal with that new debris that's in the area from the backflow and from the additional damage. So actually, that which you did to prevent inflammation, which you didn't because it, once a tissue rewarms, the inflammatory response resumes. So that which you did to prevent it actually caused additional. That's, in, that's mm -hmm. indisputable. It's an absolute fact. And you go, well, wait a minute, what? Well, no, that's just reality. First of all, you want it. You, you don't want to stop it. You can't stop it with ice to begin with. And if you do try to stop it, all you do is delay it and actually make it worse. So is that what you really want to do? And of course, that's not what anybody wants to do who's thinking. And then they say, oh, well, I want to prevent swelling. And they say, really, you want to prevent swelling? So you want to prevent the fluid that your innate intelligence is sending to the damaged area to mobilize, repair, and cleanup crew and evacuate the waste by the lymphatics. You actually want to block that fluid. Do you actually believe, now seriously, as a, as a clinician, as someone who's thinking, do you actually believe that your immune system is sending the wrong amount of fluid to the damaged site? But let's just, let's look at that real carefully and make sure we see what we see here. Here we've got the inflammatory response setting off the fluid coming to the area. Now, do you actually believe the wrong amount of fluid? Do you actually believe that it is an arbitrary, archaic event where just fluid comes to the area? Or do you think it's a well-regulated process? Let's look what's happening on the other side of it. On the other side of the situation, the damaged vessels are constricting, converting ingredients in the blood to grow a clot, to repair the vessel, to dissolve the clot and normalize flow in three to five days. And simultaneously, the healthy vessels are dilating and increasing perfusion. In other words, they're deliberately increasing the fluid in the area. Do you honestly believe that that's wrong? You see the problem? It doesn't even make sense that anybody would say it's wrong for the fluid to come. See, swelling, which people try to prevent with ice, which of course it doesn't prevent it because when the tissue rewarms, the inflammatory response resumes and the fluid comes. So it doesn't actually prevent swelling anyway. But it actually makes more swelling because it causes that backflow from lymphatic vessels into the interstitial space. And it also sets off from the additional damage, the inflammatory response to send more fluid to evacuate the waste. So it actually makes things worse, not better. And then lastly, to get rid of swelling. Okay, let's just think about that. The waste has to move through your lymphatic system, which is a passive system, right? Correct. Yep. Can't okay. Wait. It's a passive system. This is not deniable. The lymphatics is a passive system. So let's get this straight. You're going to put ice on the damaged tissue, which shuts off the signals between the muscles and the nerves. And you're going to tell me that you honestly believe that shutting off the signals between the muscles and the nerves, which is what putting ice on the tissue does, is going to move waste through a passive system. Now, how would that work? Mechanically, physically, how would shutting off the signals between the muscles and the nerves possibly move waste through a passive system? Well, come on, you realize real quickly it doesn't. And that's why, after nearly 40 years of widespread use, there isn't a single shred of evidence that it prevents inflammation, 
that it prevents swelling or that it gets rid of swelling. There have been four worldwide reviews. 2012, the British Journal of Sports Medicine. 2008, the Journal of Emergency Medicine. 2004, the Journal of Athletic Medicine Research. 2004, the American Journal of Sports Medicine. Or the American Journal, yeah, the American Journal of Sports Medicine. Okay, four worldwide reviews. Here's a summary of the conclusion statement. And you can't make this up because it's so crazy what the conclusion is. Although popular, there's no evidence whatsoever it helps. Now, think about that. Very credible journals have tried to figure out the best possible spin they could put on this because everybody believes it's true. Well, not everybody, not anymore. More than a million people have now heard this message. So not everybody believes it anymore. Now, with that said, you say, well, four worldwide reviews, there's no evidence. Well, well, what is there? Well, there is indisputable proof, not opinion, proof that it delays healing, that it increases swelling, that it causes additional damage, and it shuts off the signals that alert you to harmful movement, and you need movement to solve the problem. The human body is designed to self-repair, not self-destruct. When you put ice on, you are facilitating self-destruction, not self-repair. Makes sense. Um, I guess the, one of the questions that I had, and I've talked to you before on this one, and I think you probably already summed it up, but I wanted to just ask it specifically is, like, what has been your best way and approach to, like, getting people to try and change their mindset because I know some are just so dead set uh, on what they've always done. Um, I've sat through many a talk at different conventions about how, you know, there's still evidence for it in the first 48 hours and a secondary hypoxic effect and this, that, and the other thing. So Wait, stop, 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 stop. I can't let you get away with that. That's I not I true. Listen to it. I didn't say that. that, I was, that that's not yeah. true though. First of all, first of all, there is no such thing as secondary cellular death. First of all, made it up. There is no such thing as secondary cellular death. There is nothing inevitable going to occur in the future when you damage tissue. When you damage tissue, those cells that are damaged beyond repair will die. Any subsequent death hypoxia or whatever you call it. Look at the reason for it. It's because of the congestion in the area. The congestion suffocates otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in initial trauma. I actually wrote a paper called Secondary Cellular Death is Actually Negligent Homicide, where I proved with clinical fact right out of the literature that there is no such thing as secondary cellular death. It is primary to the congestion. Matter. If it's inevitable, if it's if it's secondary to the initial trauma, there's not much you can do about it. You're kind of stuck with the result. If it is in fact primary to the congestion, better because you can just ask the question. Well, if there wasn't the congestion, would it occur? And the answer is no. Thus, that that in itself proves it is not secondary. Okay, it is not secondary cellular death if, in fact, you can prevent it by simply decongesting the area. So, if you take and say this hypoxic 
where these otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in the initial trauma suffocate and die. What can I do? Well, decongest the area. Well, how would you decongest the area? Okay, that's a great question. Very simple to answer. The area decongests, the particles are too big to go back through your venules, so they've got to go through lymphatics. They're going to go through one cell at a time. So it's a very slow process, but don't worry. You've got 165,000 miles or so of lymphatic vessels. There's no problem. It'll work. The human body is designed to self-repair. Okay? This is a reality. Now, so how do you get that waste to move out of the area so you don't have, quote, secondary cellular death? you just decongest the area by muscle activation and move the waste along the path if it is no longer congested there would not be that suffocation would there I mean I'm asking a real life question here question is not there would there be the suffocation of the otherwise perfectly healthy cells that weren't involved in initial trauma the answer to that no okay well get rid of the congestion that's gonna clear everything up okay then the only reasonable question is not how do i make it more congested which is what ice does which is what compression does that's what happens when you make it when you seal off the area with compression and when you put ice on it i can't think of anything worse than to say what i'm going to do is i'm going to put ice on it to prevent flow and i'm simultaneously going to choke it off by compressing it mix this stuff up I'll tell you who made it up. Some people who were figuring out what to do if you sever a body part. It has nothing. It's a tourniquet. Everybody listening, go to your phone. Google tourniquet. You'll see the intent of a tourniquet is to stop flow, to stop circulation. You want to prevent circulation, which is what icing and compression does. It's so crazy how mixed up the answer is here when it's really very simple. If you start with the idea, the understanding that the human body is designed to self-repair, not self-destruct. But that's just one of my crazy spots when people say to me, well, no, it's not well. That part's not true. Now, I apologize for interrupting you, but I had to. So next question. You're, you're all good. Um, I guess the kind of the first part before I gave, gave you the lead into that was it's like, what's been your best approach in terms of like talking with people and convincing? Is it just what you've basically said already um, with all the science behind why it doesn't make sense? No, actually. Uh, but, 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 but yes, that's your backup. But first of all, just to tell you in my book which unfortunately costs money but it's only 15 bucks if you are interested in leading others out of the ice age my book and here's the reason chapter five five is the university of you lead others out of the ice age i give you the questions that are asked answers that i've given thousands of times with the clinical evidence to support what I just said. If you are someone who is inclined to lead others out of the Ice Age, my book. Now, with that said, you don't need to read my book. 
Okay, this is not a commercial for my book. My book's there if you want it. But you don't need my book. Here's all you have to ask anyone who's trying to put ice on you or trying to convince you that putting ice on somebody else would be a good idea. Ask them, what is your intent? Do not, do not move off your mark. Say to them, what is your intent? You Tell me what someone would say their intent is, because I know that you know icing's wrong. But if you said to someone, what is your intent? What's an answer you get back? I think it's some of the ones you've already said, the prevent swelling or remove swelling. Okay, let's just look at that then. So, so let's, let's pretend that that's you saying it. And I would ask you a very simple question. I asked the intent. You said to prevent or remove swelling. I just simply say to you then, please answer. How would that work? I couldn't even do it because I'm going to get shut my own answer down before I get too far down that rabbit hole. That's all you have to do. That's how I talk everyone out of it. How would that work? And then any reasonably educated person would say, well, wait a minute. It wouldn't work. Of course it doesn't work. If you listen to the interview I did with Kelly Starry, I'm going to say world famous uh, DPT, the doctor of physical therapy in the CrossFit world. Very smart man. Very in touch with reality and how to talk and communicate. Great program called Mobility Wad. He has answers to all kinds of things. They did with me. I looked at him and I said, how would that work? It wouldn't. And he put his head down. I stopped <laughs> Kelly Starrett on the spot. It wouldn't. Now with that, Kelly later uh, acknowledged that he would never use ice again on damaged tissue. And by the way, he has not wrote one of the forwards to my book. And yep. in that, he said that seminal moments in his career. Now, I'm going to be honest. I did not know what seminal meant. I had to look it up. I'd <laughs> never seen the word before. I'd never heard the word before. And I went, wow. And I called him up. I said, Kel, I said, all I did was report it back to you. I didn't do anything. Kelly said to me was you changed the way I practice medicine now by the way that's one of the forwards to my book there are two forwards to my book guess who wrote the other one uh, was Gabe, Merkin. Gabe Merkin the godfather of the ice age the guy who literally started this mess is the other forward to my book so for anybody who's right now saying out there listening well I don't know if I believe this who's this guy okay stop Kelly Starrett wrote one of the forewords, and Dr. Gabe Merkin, the godfather of the Ice Age, wrote the other. I don't know what I'd have to do beyond telling you that Gabe Merkin, the MD, the certified in four medical professions, who started the Ice Age, has publicly recanted, which has clearly shown I was wrong. I made this up. Don't do it. It delays healing. I don't know what you'd need more than that. To say, now, wait a minute, what? Yeah, that's actually a fact that I just stated to you. Gabe Merkin has publicly recanted, acknowledged he made it up, that it was wrong, and that you shouldn't do it. Now, on top of that, Dr. Merkin falls short in his, in his recant because he just says it delays healing. 
it increases swelling, it causes additional damage, and it shuts off the signals and alerts you to harmful movement, and you need movement problem. The whole situation is completely backwards when you go from the rice is nice protocol. When the tissue rewarms, the inflammatory response resumes. So that wouldn't work. You don't want to make more swelling in the area by causing a backflow from lymphatic vessels. So that wouldn't prevent swelling. It would actually make it worse. And you certainly wouldn't want to destroy additional cells. Now, someone challenged me on the additional cell death. And I said, do you read? Well, cryotherapy and nerve damage. Just Google it. I made a Google it right in front of me. I said, Google it right now. And they're like, oh, wow. I didn't know. Oh, yeah. Heard of this? Oh, yeah, that's why you always put a towel there. So you don't. I said, wait, stop. It says what the lawsuits are about. The lawsuits are about companies that sell ice products where they didn't give adequate warming that you could kill nerve cells. Muscle damage and ice cryotherapy. You'll see the most recent article in September of 2013, the Journal of Athletic Medicine Research. They actually, the title of the article is Icing. Wait, wait, it causes additional damage. It's like, what? It kills muscle cells. They drew blood. They did, they did eccentric only exercise. They beat the subjects up. One group didn't ice the other. They then drew the blood and found the CPK3s. The elevation of the markers of muscle damage went, uh, the, the markers of muscle damage elevated by putting ice on. So we know it kills muscle cells. Clearly, everybody has heard of frostbite. That's skin cells. So let me get this straight. We know it kills nerve cells. We know it kills muscle cells. We know it kills uh, skin cells. Well, wait a minute. What about those satellite cells that reside above the muscle below the skin? How do you think they're doing in this ice storm? You, you couldn't have a worse idea than to think that it's going to prevent swelling. A chance. And by the way, aren't you a little suspicious? When after nearly 40 years of widespread use, there's not a single relevant article in the journals, an index peer-reviewed study, not a single one saying it prevents swelling. Suspicious. How about this? How about I walk into your clinic and I say to you, hey, I got an idea for you. Now, look, it's been going on for about 40 years and, and there's no evidence whatsoever it helps. And, well, you know, honestly, there's undeniable proof that it delays healing, increases swelling, causes additional damage, and shuts off the signals that alert your harmful movement. You need movement to solve the problem. Uh, but, but besides that, want to try it? <laughs> what would you say to me if I walked in and said that in your clinic? You'd say, get out of here. You're a goof. And yet that is exactly what's going on. Now, the sad news is, even though a million people have heard the message or more, the majority of people still is. I literally, I literally was with a NBA head trainer on a Tuesday. I don't know whether uh, your audience is aware, so I'll just say it. Over 90 professional athletic teams are in my, in my workspace. So mm -hmm. I, I work with, in effect, over 90, along with uh, uh, elite athletes all over the country at different levels.
And I, like you, you may be aware, Misha Tate, the MMAs. I, I work yep. with some of the people over there. But, but, but not, not saying about me, that's not the point. You stop and you try to understand what's going on. And you look at the way people are evaluating the situation. They miss the point. They get lost in the details. Think it through. Think it through and you understand. And you say, and here's the what. This, may, this, this, NF, this NBA trainer percent agreed with me when I explained to him what I've just explained to you. I agree. I completely understood. 48 hours later, on the bench, watching the game, I see a million dollar player with two giant bags of ice on his knees. Yeah. Up and screamed at the TV. I'm like, <laughs> that's impossible. I just was with that guy. That's so. How what makes this happen? This is such a deep rooted problem. It's going to take an entire generation before we wash it out, in my opinion. It's going to take an entire generation. The good news is, in this with, uh, um, with sincerity and with respect, humble, up and coming athletic trainers, physical therapists, I, I don't mean this in a negative way, but the muscled up, tattooed people the stupid stuff at all. And they've already abandoned the ice idea. Very powerful voice in the sports athletic. So that group is very verbal. The World Championships, I, I, I meet hundreds of people who get it totally. Who get it totally. So you get over in certain spaces and it's completely converted. If, the, if you look at my book on the last page, I have an email from the head trainer of the University of South Carolina, Aiken. What he says is, I've been doing this for 25 years. He's been a trainer for 25 years. And he reports to me, and by the way, you can go on Kendall, last page, you can read this for free if you want, if you don't want to buy it. In my 25 years, I just had the best season of, of my career. People getting better quicker and having less complications because I threw ice out of my training room. Now, I just interviewed a major league pitcher uh, last Monday. Pitchers said the same thing. They do not ice. Like, what a shift that is to major league pitchers. And by the way, at this point in time, around 80 major league pitchers using the Mark Pro muscle activation device, yep. who using ice only, and many of them don't use ice anymore. But here's what happened in the interview. Now, I cannot tell you who the player is yet, because until the team approves the interview, it's uniform. I cannot put it out. I know they're going to approve it because their PR director was there during the filming. So I know everything's okay, but you have to make sure before you tell who it is. But I'm telling you, it is a brand name major league pitcher that you know his name. 
If you follow baseball even a little, you know who this person is. Here's what he says. Um, so what do you used to do? And he said, well, I used to ice my arm. I stopped icing it. Uh, so I asked, well, why? why? What made you stop icing? He said, well, he held his arm up in the air, had his arm by bending his elbow. So, you know, he's bent at the elbow. And I said, after I'd iced my arm, it would be stiffer, it would be tighter. And it, 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 it didn't feel right the next day because that just seemed wrong. Now, with that, I, I stopped the camera. Camera crew, stop, stop. And I high-fived them and I hugged them. Do you know why it was stiffer the next day? He said, no, but it definitely was. I said, but do you want to know why? I said, because what happened is when you put the ice on, you caused additional damage. Healing. You increase swelling. Signals that alert you to harmful movement and you need movement to solve the problem. So as a result, you caused additional damage that made your arm tighter. Swelling in the area. That's why putting ice on made your elbow feel tight. When well, you see that, I looked at him and I said, you are the perfect, you proved it to yourself, on yourself. Now, he then went on to say that since he stopped icing and using the, the, the Mark Pro device, and this is a quote, and of course, when the video comes out, you'll be able to check me to see how close I got the words. But this is very close to an exact quote. He said, 12 years in the majors. Last season was the first season that I reported to every assignment. It's a single game. Incredible. By not icing and using muscle activation, single game. Now think about that. You would think in the first couple years, he wouldn't miss any assignments, but by his 12th year, he'd be falling off in the opposite direction. True. We reversed it. Now, here's what I tell people. Very important point. That's the best thing I can possibly do. And I say, stop icing. Well, what else? That would be the best thing you could possibly do. Stop icing. You can do. Stop it. You'll get better results by not doing it. <clears throat> well, yeah, of course. It's, it's a problem. It's wrong. So all you do is stop icing. Activate your muscles accordingly. The body is designed to self-repair, not self-destruct. So it's set up by a muscle activation. The inventor of the human body was very, very smart. <laughs> uh, very, very smart. Because look what they did. There are four things that have to happen. Healing to, for recovery to happen. And what I say is that recovers for nothing left to heal. Recovered just means you're healed. Okay? That's all it means. Recovers just another word for nothing left to heal. Now, with that, you simply look and you say, what am I trying to do? Happen. Well, you have to get good stuff in. You have to get bad stuff out. Get the muscles to produce and release the myokines that drive or mediate the tissue regeneration process.
and you've got to reorganize the repaired tissue. These are the four things that have to happen. As it turns out, loading the muscle is the only way to make all four occur. When you load the muscle, a nitric oxide dependent vasodilation, the muscle goes, hey, we need more oxygen, and sends a signal across to the endothelium that converts the L-arginine to nitric oxide that then into the muscles that surround the vessels that causes them to relax that increases the blood flow in. Simultaneously, the same stress that caused that increased flow in the muscles around the lymphatic vessels to, in effect, milk the cow backwards. That works very well in Wisconsin, by the way. That doesn't go over real well in South Florida, by the way. But it works really well in Wisconsin, milking the cow backwards. So that's how your lymphatics work. So the same stress that caused the good stuff to go in causes the bad stuff to go out. The same stress that causes the good stuff to go in, the bad stuff to go out, also causes the muscles to produce and release the myokines that drive or mediate that tissue regeneration process. For example, most, more, most specifically, the angiogenesis and the mitochondrial biogenesis. You've got you to recapitalize the area and you've got to restaff the fuel centers. So this is very important, and the myokines drive that process, the PGC-alpha-1, if anybody cares. Um, now, uh, with that, read this. Uh, I have an article up. By the way, it's free. So all you do is Google my name and just get it. It's called Wasting Away in Margaritaville. Don't let the title fool you. It's a very well-written article. My lead co-author is the editor-in-chief of the Physician Sports Medicine Journal an MD, an orthopedic surgeon, very qualified, excellent article, very well referenced. It's called Wasting Away in Margaritaville. So if you put in Wasting Away in Margaritaville, Rhino, it'll pop right up. Now, that's my last name. Now, so you, the same stress that causes the good stuff to go in, the bad stuff to go out, and the muscles to produce and release the myokines, that same stress organized to repair tissue, which remember, it's inflammation repair remodel when you have the repair phase, I call that the rough carpenters. They just kind of like throw anything together they can to kind of solve the problem and get it back together. And then you got to come in and repair tissue. So there's four things that have to happen. Good stuff in, bad stuff out, production release of the myokines, repair tissue. All four things are run by the exact same stress. Stimulus causes all four things to occur. Not passive, you have to actually stress the muscle. So just think about that. What if there were four different stimuluses? Could you imagine how almost impossible it would be for you to ever heal? Same stress causes all four. Healing is relatively simple. In fact, it's, it's practically a blinded process. You don't do anything. It just does it. Self-repair, not self-destruct. Now, this really matters, think, if you had to do those four things separately, it'd be impossible. The human body was so smart. In my opinion, here's what happened. They were sitting there and they were looking and they went, okay, human beings are gonna get bumped once in a while and they're gonna get hurt and they're gonna sprain their ankles. So what is it that I could do to facilitate healing? Well, only one thing I can think they're always going to have to do, and that's move, because they're not going to be able to just sit still. So that the self-repairing mechanism is muscle activation. 
because you have to move. If you don't move, you would starve to death. You would freeze to death. You'd be eaten by the lions. You had to move. Movement was an obvious way to self-repair the body simply by moving. Without that, gosh, that was brilliant. And would there have been? What else could you count on human beings doing besides moving? It's the only thing you can count on. You know they're going to have to move, so make the self-repair process contingent upon muscle activation. Makes sense. So, uh, oh, so if, um, say, someone sprains an ankle and they don't have a mark pro and they're not icing it, is your best recommendation for them to just basically walk it off? Well, I have a rule. My rule is this. Use your brain, never cause pain. Okay? So if walking hurts, then I wouldn't do it. You could do ankle pumps. And, and the ironic thing in my brain is literally thousands of physical therapists now in the positions that I've held in national physical therapy companies, literally thousands and thousands of physical therapists. And I've never met one that didn't agree that ankle pumps were a very effective way uh, to uh, decongest an area. That's what it is. So do ankle pumps. Wiggle your toes. Do the best you can. Do something. Sure. Sitting there, stillness is the enemy. So you don't want to sit there. Let's do something. If I if I if I sprain my ankle and I didn't have a Mark Pro, no electronical device that I could use, I would uh, do ankle pumps and and, and quad flexes. Uh, I would get to a mini tramp, but I'd lightly bounce on a mini tramp. Uh, you could stand on a spectacular product, by the way, called the Power Plate. Uh, I wish I invented the power plate. I think that's just, that's one of the most brilliant things anybody ever figured out, that shaking you makes your muscles activate. Uh, it's a very effective way to stress the muscles without much stress at all on the joints. So it's a great product. Unfortunately, it's a little expensive when it comes to, you know, home use. But uh, for team use, I, I, don't, I don't think any of the teams I work with don't have a, at least a power plate. Some have a dozen or more product. So I use a power plate. I do ankle pumps and, and, and quad flexes, but I certainly wouldn't sit still. Sure. What's your thought on heat then? Well, now you're pushing me into a spot that I'm very uncomfortable going to, uh, <laughs> but I'll go there. I'll, here, here's what happened. When I was researching, here's why I researched it. Many trainers would say to me, not everybody, but many would say, hey, Gary, regarding ice, should I ice while I'm activating the muscles? Should I ice before I activate the muscles? Should I ice after I activate the muscles or all or some or what? Which, what's the best thing to do? Well, since I didn't know literature. And with that, after reading a thousand or so articles and every book on the topic that I could find, and I believe I got every book on the topic. There weren't many, by the way. <laughs> all done and I went wow there's the problem here there's there's no evidence whatsoever because I was looking for an evidence-based response to the question I was asked you know what's the best time to use it and I knew that in, intuitively I knew that using it before wouldn't be a good plan because that would slow everything down and fluid dynamically cold fluid is not a good plan to move 
So I knew that wouldn't be good. It didn't make sense to use it while you were, because you'd be going in one direction with the muscle activation and the other with the ice. So that didn't make sense. So I thought, well, I guess the best time to use it would be after. To prove that. I tried to prove my three spots. It would be wrong before, it would be wrong during, and it would be best after. Because it was wrong at all times. As Kelly Starr had said, the only time ice is any good is when it's in a, 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 it's in a margarita. You wouldn't want a warm margarita. And I went, oh, okay, that makes sense. So that's a good time to use ice when you don't want a warm margarita. But I also learned or read heat because very often when you're reading about ice the article will include heat and many people say well that back in, in my early days back in the early 70s uh, early 80s these early 80s um everyone that i knew said ice the first 24 hours then heat never heat first and didn't i never really asked why i just said, oh okay, that's the rule so i'll follow that rule but then I started to understand about heat, and what heat does is dilates the vessels. So the instruction was back then, don't put heat on the first 24 hours because you don't want to dilate the vessels. You don't want to increase the flow in. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Why would you ever want to increase the flow in then? Your immune system has damaged vessels and die biochemically dilated the healthy surrounding vessels and increased perfusion. In other words, your innate intelligence has already regulated the increased flow in to mobilize, repair, and clean up crew, package the waste for evacuation to the lymphatics. So that's already taken place. So it's already an increased flow in. By the way, you can Google that. And you can see that the damaged vessels constrict and the healthy surrounding vessels dilate and increase perfusion. That's right out of guidance textbook of physiology. So that's straight up. Now, if you put heat on, it further dilates the vessels and it further increases the flow in. Here's the problem. So here you are sending an additional into an area that already has additional and you don't have an exit plan. You're, you're increasing the flow in to increase the flow out. So putting heat on is simply a bad idea for that reason. Now, if you increase heat via muscle activation, increasing the flow in, but simultaneously increasing the flow out. So a muscle activated heat increase, that's fine. An artificial heat increase, I don't recommend it, not on my opinion. Remember, I'm a reporter in this interview. I'm simply reporting facts to you. One thing I told you my opinion of, but <laughs> mostly I'm reporting facts to you. When you increase the flow in artificially with heat, with no exit plan, it, it, it reminds me of my mentor used to say, never mount the tiger until you have planned your dismount. <laughs> Okay, because you can probably jump on a tiger's back. But how are you going to get off? It's like uh, playing your dismount before you mount the tiger. Now, with that said, what's your plan if you're going to increase the flow in artificially with heat? 
do you really want to send excess fluid to the area that's already been regulated by your immune system? We don't do that. Makes sense. Good answer. Uh, one I had just, I know you've been going on the, you know, no icing. Is there anything else that you've seen along your way kind of going through this that, um, could be improved upon or that you would see switched just in all your work on this topic? So, uh, uh, actually, it's kind of obvious to our whole conversation, but rest is wrong too. Uh, yeah. The whole idea of rest is wrong. I mean, it's, stillness is the enemy. And again, if you want to read a good paper on that, uh, I assembled a paper called Stillness is the Enemy. Google stillness is the enemy, my last name, you can get that for free. And I give you all the references that say, if you sit still, the whole system's going to atrophy. You're going to rot and the move and the waste is not going to move. And there's going to be quote, or death, which is really negligent homicide. But uh, let's just call it that. So I make the point to you. So you don't want to be still rest is wrong. You have to have a rule if you're not going to rest though. And my rule, very simply, is use your brain, never cause pain. Don't rest, but don't cause additional pain either. Right. Um, so rest is wrong. It's the screwiest thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, I don't get at all why someone would think that's a good idea once you thought about it. And if you think about it, it had to do with a tourniquet. Yeah. It has nothing to do with circulation. So let's just say... Well, with enhancing circulation, let's say that you, you have someone's ankle who they roll their ankle and someone says, well, let's, let's tape it so it doesn't swell. Wait, wait, stop, stop. Compressing the in vessels, compressing the out vessels when you do that. Now think that through and be honest. Is there any chance whatsoever that you could only compress the in vessels and not affect the out vessels. No, no. Okay, so why would you do that again? Yeah. Clearly, it's wrong to compress the vessels, the waste. So that can't even make sense. Now, with that said, uh, in that same video I did with Kelly Starr, uh, he made a comment about compression. And I grabbed his wrist, and I have a rather big hand. This wrist, and I squeeze it hard as I could. It turned white, and mine were turning white too. But I wanted to make the point. I said, uh, Is that increasing the circulation into your hand? I said, How about out of your hand? He said, No. I said, Why would you do that again? You got to think stuff through sometimes. You stop and you go, Wait a minute, what am I, why am I doing that? You're doing it because of a myth. The myth was the same process for damaged tissue as it was for a severed body part. You do not want to put a tourniquet. Stop calling it compression. You do not want to put a tourniquet on damaged areas. Now, I try not to go over into the compression space because I really don't want to debate multiple topics. That is, I have enough enemies now, enough battles now about not icing, but 
when you ask me, I'm going to tell you, why in the world would you want to compress the area when your immune system has dilated and increased, has dilated the healthy vessels and increased perfusion to the damaged site? Deliberately sending that fluid to the area to prevent its flow in. And let's just say you had a good reason without influencing the flow out. Now, you tell me that someone's going to bleed out? Put a tourniquet on. I, mm -hmm. Of course, I 100% agree. Elevation, uh, I have no... I think elevation is a relevant point. Um, I think that that has to do with, uh, again, a bleed out. It's a valid point for a bleed out. Uh, but as far as I checked, all day long and my blood and my lymphatic fluid will move from my system perfectly fine in an upright position if i needed to elevate if elevating move fluid through my lymphatic vessels away or if it does to a bare minimum because those vessels are passive nearly fully relying upon muscle activation around the vessels to milk that cow backwards you know remember what happens the the, the, the vessels are one-way valves. And when you squeeze around it, it pushes the waste up a chamber. That chamber now is empty, has a negative pressure and pulls waste out of the interstitial space and so on. It milks the cow backwards. So how in the world work, how, how would you get it to do that if you did anything except for activate the muscles? You get in these spots where it's like, Wait a minute, what? Why would, I don't know. Elevation is the answer. Elevation has nothing to do with that solution. Now, if you gave me a choice to be neutral, I pick that, and here's why. Because then your muscles are relaxed and there's no related tension invading muscles you want to activate under a controlled condition. So I'd like to be neutral. I don't want you standing up trying to activate your muscles, say electronically with a Mark Pro. I'm completely relaxed so I can activate the muscle I'm trying to activate without you resisting me. At that point, if you were standing on a mini tramp and you were lightly bouncing up and down, you're not, you're not elevated. Even on people with dreadful circulation, perfectly fine when they're bouncing on that mini tramp. You're not, you're not elevated. How could that possibly work? Because the body is not designed to be elevated to work. That's not, not how the lymphatic system works. Makes sense. It's a good explanation. Well, thanks. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, I, I've, I've had practice. I've been attacked so many times that, that uh, if you get attacked like your 2,000th time on a point, you sit down and you really figure out the answer. Which makes sense. Probably could do it in your sleep, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I think that kind of covered all our main questions. We have the ones that we always ask everybody at the end, so unless you've got anything else you'd like to cover, uh, we can go ahead and ask you those. I'm happy if you're happy. I think like we can hit it all. Um, first one is, and 
we probably could just reference the last hour that we've talked is what is something you believe that others may not? <laughs> what do I believe that others may not? And it doesn't necessarily have to be within the medical or this space, but yeah. Just <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll tell you one that uh, is actually fun. <laughs> changed, it changed me. I'm really excited to hear that. Here's what happened. I have, uh, I'm a long distance runner. I've run well over 50,000 miles. I have it recorded in my diaries. I'm well over 50,000 miles. And I developed a, uh, a hamstring that was just giving me around 17, 18 miles. And uh, I, I went to some of the top trainers in the country, literally. And when I say literally, I mean literally. Like top guys at special forces, top guys at major teams, uh, athletic trainers, physical therapists, acupuncturists. Uh, I went to a guy who, who took a, 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 a tool, a hawk grip type tool, yep. tool yep. And, and, and made me black and blue from, the, from the, the bend in my knee to the top of my butt, six inches across had people cross friction massage. I had somebody who was something called Rolfing or something. I don't even know what it was. Uh, I had all kinds of things done to my hamstring and nothing helped me. Tried stretching my hip flexors, tried, tried everything. And I, I finally got to a point where, you know, Gary, maybe you have an old tear in there and it's just, it isn't repairable with the, what you're doing and surgery would probably make it worse. So why don't you just run 15? Because marathons are 26.2. <laughs> that wouldn't work. Because see, I don't, it doesn't happen until around the 17 or 18 mile mark. So I'm trying to solve my problem and I wasn't getting a solution. And I ran across a gentleman by the name of Golden Harper. If you don't know who he is, you will in a minute uh, and you'll want to look him up. Golden Harper has the world record marathon for 12 year olds. Seven marathon at 12 years old. Now you would think at that point that he became, went on to become a great marathon runner. And when I asked him what, you know, what's the next best time he did, you know, like what, what have you done now now that you're older? Another one. And I said, wait a minute, you set the world record at 12 and you never ran another one? I said, no, I'm a middle distance guy, so I never did another one. No way with part of me figured out. Dad owned a sporting goods store. And his dad used to put people on the treadmill and have them run in their in their running shoe. And uh, then would have them take their shoes off and run their bare feet. The same. It just didn't make sense to him how much different they look in their running shoe, bare feet on the treadmill. So Golden came up with an idea and he called up Nike and that's who he says he called up and said, Hey, how come big fluffy thing on the back of the shoe and elevate the heel? What, what's the reason for that? Well, it turns out there was no reason. It made utterly literally no sense whatsoever to elevate the heel. That's the simple question. And he asked it to me also. He said, Gary, if your heel, was supposed to be higher than your toes. Don't you think it had been made that way? And I went, what? 
He said, that's what's wrong with your hamstring, Gary. He said, take your shoes off. Put your heel flat on the ground. Flat on the ground. And it kind of like, like it wasn't sticking to the ground. My heel wasn't like going to the ground. Uh, I went, wow, that's really odd. I didn't know I couldn't stand flat. Well, Kelly Starrett stepped into the picture, the CrossFit guy. And Kelly said, uh, squat down. And I went to squat down, and my heels pulled up off the floor. And he said, uh, keep your heels on the floor. I said, Kelly, I, I can't squat down with my heels on the floor. I, I, I can't do it. He said, so I started working on doing squats, just air squats, floor. Ultimately, I got to where I could squat all the way down to the floor, butt to the floor, with my heels flat. Five-pound dumbbell for 12 reps. That's where I got to. I changed running shoes. And I went to a product called Ultra Zeros. Ultra Zeros are, they're zeros. The heel is no higher than the toes. is isn't cupped to the front. The box is wide in the front. Feet move it. Let your toes grab the ground. Again, Golden Harper said this amazing thing. He said, close your hand. You know, put your fingers together and try to pick something up. He said, no, separate your fingers and try to pick something up. He said, easier? I said, well, yeah, it's a lot easier with your fingers apart. He says, now think of your toes trying to grab the ground when you stumble or when you take a step or when you have to change direction. Have your toes bunched together so they can't grab the ground. And I went, <laughs> what, are you, what are you getting this from? So the, him and I had this spectacular couple hour conversation where I told him about why you should nice. And he told me about why you shouldn't elevate your heel and box your toes in when you wear a shoe. Only wear ultra zeros. It's a fantastic product. Basically, by the way, in the endurance market, He's he's the brand. There gets it that hey, if your heel was supposed to be higher than your toes, it'd have been made that way. Well, they aren't supposed to be higher than your toes. And if you want to prove it to yourself in a simple test, and then your regular running shoe, see how you're slightly leaning forward. You probably don't even notice it anymore that you're leaning forward, but you are. You're pitched forward. Now take your shoe off and drive your heel into the ground. You'll see that your angle. Your, your, your body angle is back several degrees. Now, picture this. You're at your 17th mile, 18th mile, and you're starting to just lean forward a little bit. Well, now you're over that center point, hamstring, and guess what you get? It's a hamstring cramp. There was nothing wrong with my hamstring ever. My hamstring had no problem. Leaning forward to such a degree, that when I start to get tired forward, I'd pull my hamstring and it will cramp up. To begin with, I had all those things done for no reason. None of those things could fix my problem because that's not what was wrong. What was wrong was I was starting off with my heel, pushing you down to the front, which makes your toes have to try to hold you with every hit. When you drop your heel back, back that couple degrees, which takes away the entire problem and the issue never happens. 
amazing? I mean, isn't that just crazy that that's true? But if you think about it biomechanically, you know what I just said is true. Remember, I didn't make that up. It was explained to me by Golden Harper. And I looked at it and I went, he actually went to Nike. They wouldn't make the shoe for him. So he yeah. ended up going over to BYU. He's out in Salt Lake City area. Engineers over at BYU and he invented the shoe. Was he made zeros of the same height. They're not elevated. You're no longer pitched forward. You're no longer compromising with your, with your feet because your toes are, are able to spread apart in the, in the wide box and your heel is flat so you're not pitched forward. Away go your problems. Makes sense. The answer you were expecting? Honestly, I don't know expect. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good one, though. That's something that we talk about a lot, too, and agree with. And, you know, we follow Starrett and just talking about how being in those shoes is like being in a mini high heel all day long and just how it can mess up your mechanics. And we also talk a lot about how you need to treat running like a skill and not just something you just go do. So, yeah, that was great. Well, if you, if you look up that guy's the website, the whole story's there. So the whole story's there. You don't have to buy his product. By the way, his sneaks are less, his running shoe. Some of the major brands. So it isn't like it's really expensive. This is a great right. idea. By the way, just a, a warning, a warning. To any long distance runners who try that shoe, do not buy it and run in it for at least 30 days. I ran in it the first day. Figured I'd go like three or four miles and just see how they felt. Always was injured for three months. <laughs> yeah, I gotta be careful with that. I start off walking in them. And I should have known better. I couldn't, I couldn't squat to the floor with my heel staying on the floor. So I knew there was something wrong my mind that it would be so dramatic that if I went and ran, you know, three or four miles, that's for three or four miles is too easy. Now, three or four miles, I figured wouldn't cause any problem. Well, it did. What I'm doing was I walked in them for quite a bit of time, for almost that whole three months. 30 days, that's so I got hurt and I walked in them for about three months. Then what I would do is I would go and run a mile, change into my old shoes, you know, the rest of my run, you know, my other, my, the, you know, the, the balance of the 20. And then I gradually added more and more miles to the ultras until that was the whole run. Time to transition across, especially if you're older like I am, running a long time in heels, you got to give it time to, to work itself out. And, and a little tiny point on that. When I started running, I ran in Converse sneaks. I had no idea that I was running in flats back then. Converse sneaks were ultra zeros. I had no idea that Nike had changed the picture and that we all went into these high-heeled shoes and I stopped running in Converse sneaks, having no idea that I even did it. I just transitioned to the new shoe. Shoe uh, wasn't what's best. Makes sense. What's the most influential 
fitness or any other type of purchase under $100? Without a doubt, a product called The Right Stuff. And if you never heard of it, uh, you probably you, you probably use it at your university. Actually, it's a uh, uh, it's a, a stuff is a uh, um, pour in the water and then drink it to rehydrate. Oh, I'm thinking of something different. Okay. Well, I, I can tell you this: of, of the 90 plus proteins that I work with, I can't think of a single one that doesn't use it. Oh, in major universities. It is in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of major universities, colleges, junior colleges across the country. Uh, if you Google the right stuff, list of, of users, it's it's not even believable. Because I never heard of the product until I heard of it. And I heard of it a few years ago when I moved to the desert. My runs will often begin at 90 degrees and clearly be over 105 approaching 110 by the time i'm done so you can imagine the need to properly rehydrate i heard of this product and i said come on it's another gimmick look at the name the right stuff you know that's just a name well as it turns out it actually isn't a gimmick um license the nasa this isn't one of those nonsense NASA things. This is a real NASA thing. NASA developed the formula for the astronauts so they wouldn't have problems in space. Licensed the right, the formula, from NASA. Facilities on every sale. A product called the right stuff. And it's like three bucks a dose. So clearly that's under 100. And that is one of the, if, if it wasn't for the right stuff, I could not run as often as I do and feel as good as I do environment that I run. It's just impossible. Without the product, I couldn't do it. Impressive. Let's look into it. Uh, next question on the list. Do you have any book recommendations that you would recommend to people? Two. What your current I, I recommend uh, Kelly Starts, The Supple Leopard. I think that is a great book. Absolutely. A lot of self-maintenance. Great book. And then if you're a little older, interested in details, an orthopedic surgeon, the book is called Framework by uh, Nick Denubly. The site is drnick.com for anybody that wants to look at it. Uh, but his um, is that the information to help your body last as long as you do. He's a surgeon. Prefer you not to have surgery. Is people to self-maintain, not fix things with a with a surgery. Uh, really a cool doc. He's the old editor in chief of the Physician Sports Medicine Journal. Uh, he's the uh, of the American Council on Exercise. So this guy's a real quality, top-notch. But what I like about him is he's got the qualifications of a surgeon and gives you solutions that are non-surgical. Book is a really good book. Sounds interesting. Yeah, check that one out for sure. Uh, last one we got for you. If you could go back and tell yourself 
yourself anything in your training or your education like 10 years ago, what would it be? What it would be was to not question. Uh, and what I mean by that is I used to think and, you know, too picky or too hard or maybe I'm finding too many flaws. Um, and I, today, I don't do that. I go right after it. And if I think something's wrong, I'm going to dig and I'm going to fight and I'm going to figure it out. Earlier years, if too many people push back against me, I back off. And I'll give you a real example. Um, this, is, this is one of those that I wish I could go redo and maybe I will. Years ago, uh, with a, another, uh, with my co-author, Wayne, Dr. Wayne Westcott, and it was about fat loss. When we, we'd had mo over 3,000 people in our subject pile, by the way, in our, uh, in, our, in our study. And what we proved was very important points about the whole idea of weight loss. Any company, any product, any person that says to you, they're going to help you lose weight, like that commercial says, you will lose weight, or I lost 12 pounds in nine days, or whatever. Those people, every one of them. Because if they're saying that they're going to give you weight loss, you're not trying to lose weight, you're trying to lose fat. You wouldn't want to lose 12 pounds of muscle. And yet, they don't measure what you're losing a doc and the doc says it's going to put you on a weight loss program on a conventional scale and they say you were 180 now you're 160 congratulations you dropped 20 pounds what if it's 20 pounds of muscle if it's 20 pounds of lean you didn't check it that's unacceptable you did it wrong and that is a very important point to understand because anytime you're trying to lose fat loss program not a weight loss program and so here was the formula that I made up actually I figured out I didn't make it up if you gained 20 pounds of fat from your 30s to your 40s your 40s to your 50s your 50s to your 60s every decade you gain 20 pounds of fat right that'd be mm -hmm. 60 pounds of fat now, yep. most people don't gain more than 60 pounds of fat in that 30-year period. But, you know, a quick walk through the mall, and you notice that a lot of people are real near that number. Actually, during each 10-year period, you gain 20 pounds. That ends up being 60 over the 30-year period, which is pretty typical, actually. You look and you say, well, that's a lot of fat, more than most people would want to gain, certainly more than most would admit that they gained. But I have a question for you. I think your caloric intake use imbalance was for each of the days of that 30 years that ended up with a 60-pound fat gain. I'm asking you, what do you think your caloric intake use imbalance was for that period of time? Maybe what do you I, think your miss was? Probably something as small as like one to 300 calories a day. You're better than most people on your guess, but you're so far off, you're not even going to believe me. What's it, like 20? 19.65. Interesting. Wow. So here it is. You gain 20 pounds of fat, right, in 10 years. That's two pounds a year, right? 7,000 calories. 
7,000 calories divided by 365 and a quarter, because of leap year, equals 19.65. Now, you say, and you say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. That if I just didn't eat 19.65 calories per day, each of those days in that 30 years, I wouldn't have gained an ounce of fat, I would have, but it's exactly correct. And that's it. Or, or heaven forbid, you could have walked for three minutes <laughs> and not changed a single thing you consumed in the entire 30 years. And you wouldn't have gained an ounce of that 60 pounds of fat. Now, do you think that's a pretty important message to get out there? It's huge. Yeah. Are you ready for this? When the book went to go out, I was the next, the next book. Back in that day, it was the South Beach Diet, and we were the next book coming. We were with Rodell Press. They bought the rights to my book from us, so they gave us money. They said, okay, this is our book now. We're going to run with this. It was going to be the feature book in Prevention Magazine. Google the old stuff. If you put in Rhino Westcott Prevention Magazine, you, it still comes up because they were set to go interviewed we had a press conference in new york city and they brought in about 25 or 30 magazines uh, you know the editors and writers for magazines and i told everyone that what i just told you that a few days later i was called by the head people from rodell press which i find disgusting and they probably lie and say it isn't true today but i'm telling you it's what happened the book and they buried it you know why because the advertisers in their magazine are Weight Watchers, Nutrisystem, LA Weight Loss. That's what their advertisers are. Imagine if you ever printed what I just said, what that would do to your advertising revenue. They buried the book. How could you possibly bury a message that important? Well, they did. And I didn't fight like I'm fighting today against ice. 10 years ago, if I was, if I was able to take my information, my, my, my process now back there, I'd have pounded those people and I'd have won. <laughs> Go, I let them win because what could I do? They paid me for the book. I no longer own the rights and I walked away. Knowing I was right, I can prove it mathematically. I know I'm right. And by the way, if anybody's interested, uh, I still keep my website up. It's called whyarewesofat.com. You can go to that website and you can read all the stuff. It's all there for free. Uh, you can download the papers that I wrote about it and use them in any way you want. I don't care. You know, don't be creepy about it. But if you <laughs> want to use the information, go ahead and use it. Explain everything there. And you think, well, clearly that would have that would have made it mainstream. Not a chance, man. They buried that so fast. After that, after that press conference, <laughs> it was all over. And if I, if I could go back, I'd know then what I know now, and I would not have lost that fight. Well, I didn't lose the fight. They buried me. So they, they extinguished the fight. How was that for an answer you weren't expecting? That was a good one. There's a lot, a lot of good stuff out of that answer. I like it.
Why well, are we so fat.com? That's the website. I will. I'm going to check that out as soon as we're done chatting out of curiosity. Um, in kind of closing then, is there anything that you want to plug or, you know, let us know where people can find you, follow you, get more information. And we'll link that all up in our show notes. I think that for anybody that wants information on the muscle activation technique that I recommend, Mark Pro, that's markpro.com. That's, uh, I can tell you at this point, uh, players, major league baseball team, absolutely across the board for sure. Now in your town, you're a very big user, and, and I know you know that because you know the people there. And the head of medical there is a very big supporter, and he really gets it. Uh, the Green Bay Packers use me. Universities in in Wisconsin, and I think mostly because um, the Packers intern program there that produces in the market. And so when they leave the Packers, they get to the university, then they end up calling me, and the next thing you know, they're also using it. So markpro.com is worth looking at. Okay. Uh, what I would tell you is this. Well, first of all, for anybody who's listening, if you're a school, contact me and I'll make sure you get the protein discount. Okay, so don't just buy it. Get you the protein discount. Uh, and with that said, carry at markpro.com. So don't just buy it and pay full price because you don't have to. Then my website is GaryRinal.com. There they can go there and they can see more. Of uh, um, papers on out on the written out there that some are worth reading. The ones I really think are good. Inflammatory. You shouldn't use anti-inflammatories in ice. Wasting away in Margaritaville or death is actually negligent homicide. All three of them are free. So all you got to do is go online and print them. They're just, they're sitting there and you can just take them. Um, the, the book, Iced, you know, if you're really into it and you want to know the book to help lead others out of the ice age. If you just like reading stuff that's kind of a story about how something happened, it's a good book. Uh, if you are not interested in reading those out of the Ice Age, necessarily like reading a story, um, just take what I just gave you today. You don't need to read the book. So that's about all the plugs that I have to, for things that I, I wish people knew about. Advice, or I have, I'd like to give advice to anybody who is coming up through the system and to learn and be the best they can be for the future. Take this very seriously, what I'm going to say. If something see, seems wrong to you, do not be afraid to ask the authorities, the people in charge, to explain how that works. Why? Don't be timid. Don't say, well, you know, I don't want to cause that. No. If you think something doesn't seem right, how would that work? How would that work? Very simple question. How would that work? Explain to you how it would work in a way that makes sense to you. 
and go, go to work. Start figuring out why they're wrong. The reality is a lot of things are not right out. So go help figure this out. And, uh, and, and yes, you will make a few enemies because you'll feel good about what you've done. Sounds good. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time and letting us record this and get it out. I know you and I have had conversations before and I tried to transcribe some of them, but this will be perfect to have it to just help spread the information. Well, I appreciate the chance and uh, thanks for having me on. And the Absolutely. meltdown continues. To just remember the meltdown continues. Absolutely. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much, sir, and have a great rest of your day. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for checking out this episode of Clinically Pressed. Go to clinicallypress.com for full show notes and links to everything that was covered in this episode. While you're there, you have access to all of our episodes, insights, and shorts. You can find Clinically Pressed on YouTube and any podcast outlet. If you could give us a rating, thumbs up, or review on how we are doing, we would greatly appreciate it. To get more free content delivered to your inbox, sign up for the Total Athletic Therapy Newsletter. You'll get direct links to all new Clinically Pressed episodes, reviews on some of the latest research in health and performance, and links to related podcasts and other items meant to help you make the complicated simple and optimize performance. Thank you for listening and see you next episode.